Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, everyone, we're celebrating a very special anniversary today. <laughs> Are we celebrating this anniversary? Mm. I'm not so sure about celebrating. Mm. We're yeah, marking this anniversary. Yes. We're marking. Uh, as of tomorrow, March 11th, we'll mark one day. Uh, one year, sorry. Oof. One year since one year, uh, one day. we went remote. It was it was one year ago that, well, technically we were semi-remote, but uh, Susan and I were in the studio, the actual Jungle Studio with Michaela Fogel. Back when it still had plants. Yes, when it was still fecund. And uh, Tammy was quarantining. You're welcome. Because you had been traveling and Brookings had just imposed the rules that you couldn't come back, right? Actually, it wasn't even from travel. It was that I had spoken at the APAC conference, that 20,000 person convention center extravaganza. And there were three COVID cases from Only three. And so we all quarantined. Oh, you were so ahead of the curve, Tammy. <laughs> Tell me about it. So I have two extra weeks of being home on all of you. But our, I just want to say our tech has improved so much since then, because the first few episodes, we we were doing the virtual jungle studio. We were all recording locally on our Zooms. Tammy and I were recording from the bed studio. Um, <laughs> the John and Yoko studio. Yeah. Um, and uh, now we have this re- this cool remote get up with Zach. Oh, yeah. We could do this forever. No. No. Oh, yeah. No. We've ironed out all the kinks, guys. This is a well-oiled totally machine. Fine. It's going great. Check in with us in a year. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the happy birthday remote jungle studio edition. <laughs> Should we birthday. sing happy birthday to the remote jungle? No, no, absolutely no. not. No. Uh, my remote, I will say, as we all know, credit to Joe, my remote jungle studio game has like gone up considerably. Oh, you definitely have the most professional setup. Like I, I have audio engineers tell me, but like, like, what is that? I'm like, I feel very proud. I will say of this. <laughs> can I, I, can really I take do. a screenshot and tweet it? I thought you did like before. Yeah, oh, then I don't yeah. need to again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've done that. That's old hat, Ben. Oh, Isn't sorry. everything old hat by now? <laughs> it feels like it. It feels like it. I wear nothing but old hats every day. <laughs> when we go, when we finally get to be in person, let's do the same setup as the Oprah, Harry, and Meghan interview. Where we're <gasps> yes. in like a beautiful garden oh. with like calm, sort of comfy outdoor furniture. Can I say, by the way, like, I, I'm not going to get Let's into it with the Let's all savage Royals. our family member. Oh, no, that, hey, I'm, I'm all for that. Sign me up. No, I'm just kidding. My father listens to the podcast now. Just kidding. Just kidding, Dad. Just kidding. I love you. 
Um, but seriously, I love the reactions of people being like, wow, Oprah showed remarkable skills as an interviewer. I'm like, of course she did. Where have you been? Like she had a talk show. Like, I mean, I, it was just baffling to me being like, wow, it's really a masterclass of interviewing. Like no shit people. She's only been doing it for like 40 years. Come on. (laughs) People just discovering Oprah. Anyway, Gone in this you. episode, we will devote all three segments to the Mary to the Harry and Meghan interview <laughs> and its national security uh, implications for the transatlantic relationship. There are security implications. You know what? The relationship is not really that special anymore. I'm not <gasps> feeling it. It's an unspecial relationship. I'm feeling very unspecial about this relationship. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. my. Well, I'm feeling very special about our anniversary in a weird, strange way. I'm here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Shane. Um, we actually just learned this morning the Washington Post is going back to the office slowly beginning July 6th. Wow, wow, that is something to look forward to. That is when the, the re phase of the descent will begin, and hopefully your heat shield is intact and all that. Yeah, but, um, nice metaphor. You know, like that. <laughs> hopefully we don't skip off the atmosphere and burn up. But until then, we still got some more remote time to go. This week, the Biden administration is reviewing the policy on drone strikes. You remember those. At the same time, it grapples with how to respond from aggressive cyber threats from Russia and China. And one year after much of the United States went into a virtual lockdown, the origins of the coronavirus remain unknown. Let's talk about drone strikes. Um, There was a story broken by the New York Times this week uh, about how the administration has, as Charlie Savage and Eric Schmidt reported, quietly imposed temporary limits on counterterrorism drone strikes and commando raids outside of conventional battlefield zones like Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, and this is part of a broader review of whether to tighten Trump-era rules for those operations. Ben, let's start with you. This feels like that proverbial pendulum swinging. The Obama administration applied a high level of scrutiny at senior levels, including in the White House, to drone strikes. The Trump administration delegated a lot of authorities lower down the chain. And now President Biden seems like he has to kind of decide where to set things What's the biggest factor influencing where he is going to come out on this review, do you think? So I actually want to start by challenging the metaphor a little bit. Do it. Challenge my pendulum, Ben. The pendulum swing kind of implies a, a regular back and forth. And I don't think there is a regular back and forth here. I think there's two very strong personalities. One is Barack Obama who really believed that he should be personally accountable for drone strike decisions. And uh, the result was a very high degree of concentration of authority and permissions within the NSC and ultimately within to the president himself. I mean, he got very involved in some of these decisions. And felt a moral obligation to do so too. Yes, right? I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not actually criticizing uh, either of these judgments. I'm, I'm trying to describe them. This was partly a function of the fact that the early Obama administration had an enormous number of drone strikes. Remember, there were 
3,000 approximately middle Al-Qaeda figures killed in the first couple of years of the Obama administration's in drone strikes. This was a very active part of the policy. It was also a reflection of a reaction against a certain attitude in the Bush administration of kind of pushing certain decisions down the chain a little bit. Um, when Trump came in, uh, there was a lot of discontent in the military at the degree of battlefield decisions that were being run up the chain into the White House. Uh, and Trump, of course, who did not feel the same degree of, shall we say, individual moral accountability for life and death decisions as Obama, uh, really gave the Pentagon a lot more latitude uh, now you bring back a whole lot of people who served in the Obama administration, and there is a sense that there is not enough centralized accountability for judgments. So there is a tension here between political appointees in the White House who are used to being involved, briefed, asked permission for, and Pentagon people who really see this as more of a commander decision and a Pentagon decision than a White House decision. The answer to your question about what are the big factors for Biden is ultimately his own relationship with the Pentagon. I don't think this is an ideological issue. I think it's a how commander does the president want to be in the context of his role as commander in chief. My gut tells me that Biden will be somewhere in between. He will want to be more involved than Trump was. He also, it is not going to be the centerpiece of his policy the way it was in the early Obama administration. And so the need for him to be, you know, fly-specking individual operations is going to be less than it was for Obama. That's my gut about where this is going to come out. I think that's absolutely right to focus on. So our former colleague, Emily Horn, who's now the spokesperson for the National Security Council, sort of framed this as, well, it's just about getting full visibility into what's going on. Like, this is just about sort of awareness. And I think Ben's right. This is really about control. It's about the decision makers. It's about what constraints are going to apply in practice. And look, I think it's safe to say that ordinarily, whenever the NSC reviews something and says, should the NSC be responsible for this or should somebody else be responsible for this. Nine times out of 10, the NSC decides the NSC should be responsible for this, right? So there's a little bit of a thumb on the scale there. And I think the um, the interesting question is how much, uh, like what, what will be the view and how much juice will people like Avril Haines and uh, and the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin sort of have in, in that conversation? Because um, it, it really is one about, you know, fundamental control, who's going to sign off, who's going to set the policy here. I do think that there are two sort of questions, at least that I took away from the article, and I think it'll be really interesting to see um, how they get resolved. So the first is this enduring tension between um, should the CIA do this or should DOD do this? So this was something that sort of, I think was a little bit of a paradox during the Obama administration, which was the clear view by the president and his closest sort of legal advisors that legally and lawfully DOD was the more appropriate actors here um, with the operation 
operational reality, or at least the belief uh, that the CIA tended to actually be better at targeting, that the outcome was fewer uh, sort of collateral casualties, right? And, and, and that tension played out. Um, you know, in describing, in, in, in hearing the administration sort of describe uh, the state of the review right now, um, it looks like it's sort of those same questions remain. Who's going to be responsible for what? Which of these agencies are, are going to sort of um, have a voice here? I just think um, interesting to see how they'll, they'll resolve it. Interesting that it's still an enduring question. And basically the way the Trump administration answered it was like, yeah, we don't care. Do whatever you want. Like, just figure it out amongst yourselves and sort of get it out of the White House. There's also stuff here that I don't know if it's true or if it's BS, but I was a little bit surprised, for example, to see the New York Times report U.S. officials saying that one big issue was that there are finite resources here. And if they devoted surveillance drones to trying to get lots and lots of information in advance of a drone strike, sort of who was coming and going, those drones wouldn't be available for other operations. Really? The United States government doesn't have enough surveillance drones in Afghanistan right now. I mean, so these are things that maybe they're true, but as someone who's who's you know sort of followed the story, I'm certainly surprised to hear that. And so I sort of wonder what the the, the sort of delta will be between there actually are new operational constraints and maybe they're scrambling to justify and what we're really seeing is like this battle of control playing out. Mm-hmm. Tammy. Well, so first of all, on Susan's last point, yeah, actually aerial surveillance is one of the more limited capabilities in our toolbox. It just is. Because of technological reasons? No, because of the 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 number of units we have available for for deployment and they can't be everywhere at once. And if they're even if they're in one area and they have a certain range within which they can work, there are multiple missions. And so you know, maybe you're not supporting the Iraqi army's counterterrorism because you're going after some guy in Yemen, for example. So there are real trade-offs. That is a real issue. It's a resource issue. And I think especially if we're looking at a future of potential cuts in the defense budget, you know, then the pressure on this stuff as the pressure on everything is going to be greater. So it's important to ask those questions. I actually think there is a pendulum here But I think it's a pendulum that's resulted from a lot of disparate concerns that have just ended up creating a pendulum. So, you know, in the Bush era, it was like never again. Right. And so especially on issues of law and the use of force, the Bush administration was very liberal, as we saw. Obama was elected in part on an argument that the United States had lost a lot of credibility on partnerships around the world because of a, quote, lawless unquote, approach to the use of force. And so Obama, you know, imposed layers and layers of legal review, especially in the White House and especially, you know, the lawyer in chief, um, the constitutional lawyer in chief, Barack Obama, in the war on terror. I think with the Trump to Biden transition, it's a different concern entirely that is driving it. And that concern, I think, is about civilian control over the military. Trump went so far in sort of reckless lack of oversight and empowering those in uniform and celebrating those in uniform and pushing authority down to those in uniform. And if you're talking about drone strikes, yes, you can have legal reviews even way out and down out in the field, but those are lawyers wearing uniforms. And the one of the big, big themes for use of force in the Biden administration from the get-go has been civilian control over 
the Defense Department and over the use of force. And so this is a way, I think, to signal that. And it's notable to me that this order was apparently, this review order was signed January 20th. It's only coming out now, probably because people are a little scratchy about the fact that it's being done or it's not finished, but it was done right away. And when an administration does an internal thing like that right away, it's about signaling to the bureaucracy. This was about saying to everybody out there prosecuting the war on terror, we want to take a close look at this. We want you to be more conservative and think hard about what you're doing because we're going to be reviewing. Yeah, so I agree that there is an element of civ mill control here. But remember that there is a intelligence community component of this as well for the reasons that uh, Susan mentioned. You know, the drone program has always been a kind of weird hybrid. There's a military program and then there's the CIA program. You know, I, I do think the ultimate driver here is always how much impersonal involvement does the president want and how much does he consider this a routine military matter that you kind of give the military the objectives and let them do their thing. And I I think we will not know how Biden, whether Biden is, you know, really wants his hands on this stuff or is more like Trump. He won't be like Trump because he doesn't project just not giving a shit. But he, you know, but will he be more apt to just see this as something where you identify the objective and the military executes? Uh, we won't know that until we see how this develops over time. He also won't have the pressures on him, arguably, that Obama had because there aren't as many drone strikes anymore. I mean, Correct. there were so many under Obama and Trump. I mean, to put it bluntly, the military and the CIA killed a lot of people. And there's not as many targets around as much now, Tammy. But I think that could well change because especially if the United States proceeds with further withdrawals from Afghanistan and Iraq, and especially if the Yemen war actually does start to wind down, there are going to be increased demands to compensate using offshore capabilities like this. Plus, you have a metastasizing terrorist problem in the Sahel in northern Africa and we're already using drones there. That's part of our small contribution to multinational effort. All right. Well, speaking of policy reviews, God, policy review is so sexy, you guys. It is. Remember it's when we used to like, talking about you remember, the issues, the law. God, do you remember when it was like, you know, like, you know, I'm not even going to say it. I just have horrible visual imagery that I could bring to bear. Should I withdraw from Syria with no thought via tweet? Is that a good idea or a bad idea, guys? (laughs) What do you think? Wow. Well, Shane, I think it's a bad idea. (laughs) If you want to see the big, broad smile on Susan's face right now as she said that, uh, you would be uh, a, a happy person. Uh, Four long years, friends. Yeah. Uh, Well, on on the cyber front, while the tempo maybe is down on the drone front uh, in in cyberspace, it is. Is it anything? But uh, we have seen big, big attacks, obviously, from Russia with the solar winds attack that we've talked about at length. 
on the podcast. Uh, there was also reports this week about the administration moving to address a global compromise by Chinese and other hackers of Microsoft email servers. Uh, so far, U.S. officials saying there was no sign that federal agencies or major defense contractors have been hacked in that campaign. Uh, but it's big. It prompted a tweet from, I think, from Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, telling people to patch ASAP their Microsoft Exchange Ser- servers. Seriously, a national security advisor tweeting, telling Americans to patch their software. That's what we've come to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a pretty strong indication that um, the administration sees uh, genuine cause for alarm uh, in this breach and clearly in the others. Susan, you know, the administration has made clear that it intends to respond to these attacks, and that has sparked a debate over whether it's a wise strategy to announce your response to your adversaries. Uh, We can talk about that. But why do you think the administration is being so public about these issues. I mean, that is, we should note, I mean, that's not always been the default position for an administration. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we're seeing is the Biden administration's cyber policy being forged under fire without any honeymoon period, like to the extent they believe they were going to get to go in and write a lot of memos and take their time and get cozy. Like that's not what that's not, that is not happening. They are now facing two significant overlapping crises. And so what we're seeing is an administration trying to figure itself out and, and sort of doing it in an iterative way that is super fascinating to watch. And I think like I think the questions of why what why are we seeing so much of this in public and why are we seeing the things in public that we are are sort of the key questions. So right, so first um you know the 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 Biden administration is trying to wrap its arms around this solar winds hack being this big Russian aggression. Of course it comes against the backdrop of the past four years. Uh, we have a, a piece in the New York Times, this very detailed piece that comes out um, in which essentially saying like the the Biden administration is planning on launching these uh, countermeasures in cyberspace. It's going to be in the next three weeks. It's going to be these clandestine operations. You might not see them, but but Putin's going to see them. Um, and that sort of set off a whole discussion of uh, what is the point of this leak? Like, is this... <laughs> Like, are you are you dumb and are you just showing your hands and like this is just a like you leaked for like it's a self-inflicted wound? Is this like you're worried about getting the message out? Like you're worried that it's too subtle and so you're trying to send this message? Are is this factions within the US government that wanna do this and are trying to campaign, right? By like, you know, getting these stories going to sort of create some pressure? Or I think the the sort of the other big question is, is this really for a domestic audience? Is this about signaling to the United States, like, yes, we're tough. Yes, we're taking action, um, which, you know, does that make us look weak and like we don't really have our act together and and uh, raises bigger questions of like, how is this going to work with sanctions? Are there any effective sanctions left against Russia? All these really sort of specific detailed questions, but also a belief like, okay, here's the thing. It's going to be like OMB where we decide you know, whether we want to respond and we'll do it and then we'll move on. And then as all this is happening, this giant um, hack about China comes out, sort of targeting Microsoft Exchange servers, very uncharacteristic of China to engage in sort of this, this very broad, untargeted attack. And all of a sudden, all these questions about what, how do we respond to solar winds also becomes, 
okay, how do we respond to solar winds in a way that's going to create a precedent for China? And are we also now going to be forced to respond to this hack in the same way? And what does this mean? And so I think what we're seeing is like, there, all of these things are being thrown at them. And there isn't a clear and coherent policy yet, which I don't say with, with judgment. It's a new administration. These are hard problems. But I think we're seeing the impossibility of trying to manage this one crisis at a time. Like they're, they're going to have to decide in a really broad holistic way, what the goals are here and and relatively quickly. You know, you make a great point that it's a new administration, but I mean, a lot of these strategic questions have been around for a long time and isn't one of the arguments for announcing to some extent, whether it's through leaks or, you know, from the podium, your intention to retaliate is to demonstrate to your adversaries that there will be real consequences. I mean, it seems like one of the debates has always been if you respond to Russia clandestinely and the world doesn't know that we did it or even Russia doesn't know that we did it, are you are you failing to create a deterrence for future bad behavior? So maybe in a sense, like putting it out there, hey, we're going to do this is a way of saying to Russia, like, oh, we're going to do it. Now we're telling you we're going to do it. You will pay for this. Yeah, I I was thinking that as well, as, you know, Susan, on your long list of possibilities for why this leak, you know, is this also the administration kind of saying to Moscow or having the New York Times say to Moscow, they're going to get you, you know, which can have the deterrent effect Shane's talking about. But, you know, part of what the Biden administration has said they want to do is to try and develop some set of shared norms across a bunch of governments. And so, you know, does this also help to create a basis for that conversation? I also, I I, want to suggest that there is an alternative way to resolve the tension that Shane just described, which is to do something that has a sufficient impact that Russia itself has to acknowledge that something happened. And then keep a studious silence about whether you were involved in it or not, but just let everybody understand. And, you know, a good example of that is, of course, the Russian interference in the U.S. election, where they have not said, we're going to get you, we're going to get you, watch your electoral system. They just did it. And they let us draw the conclusion. They even denied it. And I don't think this is such an irresolvable problem, you know, other than saying in this sort of, you know, combination of weak and bullying way, we're going to get you, watch us, we're going to get you, you're not going to know it, we're not going to say it, but we're going to, it's going to happen. So I, I don't think it's an irresolvable issue. And certainly we have a long history of non-acknowledged covert actions that everybody knows we're responsible for. Yeah, but I think we're, I I don't disagree with that, but I, I think we're jumping over sort of the threshold question, which is, you know, one, the, the the real fear of sparking a cycle of escalation. Two, a, a real uncertainty over line drawing. What are we going to tolerate because we consider it part of sort of the normal espionage and operation and, and relationships among nation states in cyberspace? Where are we going to draw the lines? How clear do we want to be in, in actually saying, like, you can do this, but no more? How much do we want to capitalize on strategic ambiguity? Because, of course, we don't want to create a situation 
situation where then our adversary is sort of engaging in just below the threshold type behavior. Um, and also in an environment in which people don't necessarily know what they're doing or sort of the, the big and significant sort of second order effects that might happen here. Um, you know, I was struck by um, Dmitry Alperovich, who was, uh, who was sort of tweeting about this and saying, look, you know, one of the most, yes, this is really significant. The China hack is really, really significant. But we should also acknowledge that like the primary source and driver of exploits is the release of patches. It's people reverse engineering these patches and people not patching their system. And so like we're back in like really, really basic sort of cybersecurity questions that have nothing to do with this nation state deterrence. And so I think those are the questions whenever I say we're we're seeing them sort of try to define their cyber policy. One, it's, you know, what are how are we actually retaliating in ways that is meaningful to other countries and they understand? But two, what do we want to retaliate for? And how are we, like, how are we going to draw and communicate what the boundaries are? Are we, I think that's absolutely right. And in Russia and, and China seem to clearly be testing those boundaries for us and waiting for us to respond to kind of tell them what it's going to be. But I also wonder, are we looking at it narrowly in the cyber context. I mean, we can look at the list of, of aggressive behaviors offline, if you will, that China is engaged in, you know, to say the least, you know, imprisoning the Uyghurs, what's going on in Hong Kong. I mean, Russia, even in a narrow human context, I mean, was pretty clearly based on information the Justice Department has released, seems to have been targeting a former spy who the U.S. government resettled in Miami in what looks unnervingly like a lead up to a Skripal hit in the United States. I mean, if something like that happened, it would it would it would spark an international crisis. Cyber is this new domain. So people kind of get away with more shit over there, I feel like. But this feels like broader spectrum. This feels like these countries really pushing in lots of different places on us to see what we'll do. Yeah. Testing. I think that's right, but but we're also seeing in how the administration talks about them about, about this sort of them drawing new lines in real time. So it used to be we talked a lot about intention, right? Were you what did you mean to do? You know, were you engaging in espionage? Did you mean to target government systems versus right? Sort of um, what what was the sort of the the uh, either the identity of the operators or the reason why you were doing it? Then we talked. Then we sort of the conversation focused on what were you targeting, right? Military systems, civilian systems. Now, and then it was democratically important systems, right? Sort of the election, election infrastructure. Okay, so how sort of systemically important is it in our uh, in our sort of democratic process overlaid with government systems versus things like the, you know, the DNC email. Now we're hearing this new conversation about sort of systemic, like important to trust that, that nobody should engage in, in espionage or hacking or targeting that might undermine broader trust, um, right? So sort of this, this this new line being drawn. And I don't say any of that in defense of our adversaries, who I, I think you're completely right, Shane, really, really aggressive over the line behavior. But also, we're trying to sort of define exactly what's wrong with it in order to justify retaliating, uh, right, in order to sort of to, to build the case for ourselves. And so I, I don't know that any of that qu answers the question, why are we seeing so much of it come out in public? But I, I do think there's just there's a huge amount going on right now. And yes, old questions, but new people or the old people in new roles and, and sort of who are asserting their policy priorities, their instincts, their priors, you know, in, in this new like just whatever is like rapidly changing, not like within six months, like in, in eight hours, things are rapidly changing here. 
Well, it is interesting to be back in a world in which, you know, we don't doubt whether the president of the United States uh, <laughs> is allied with one of our adversaries. That's a plus. We like that. That's a, a little that's a bonus. Plus. It's a little bonus. Let's in our third segment, um, we're going to get to talk about the former president again. Whew, I, it's just, just a little. Just a little. Just a scooch by, a by inference. Like, like trigger warning. Like saffron. You don't want to overdo it, but very yes. lightly. It can really bring the flavor out. Susan may be the first person on this podcast to describe the former president as subtle. <laughs> our sprinkling invocation. Of the former president is subtle. Actually, it's not that subtle. Uh, We are, as we said at the top, approaching the one year anniversary of when most people in the US went on lockdown. Of course, not the, uh, we're about, oh, probably more 15 months or so, though, into the emergence of the uh, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, that was the source of the pandemic. And perhaps remarkably, I think it's kind of remarkable, certainly notable, a year later, we still don't really know the origins of the virus. In the beginning, there was a lot of focus on uh, the initial signs of the initial outbreak. It appeared in Wuhan and China, a lot of focus on a seafood market in the area. That theory seems to have been dispelled, I think, for the most part, in terms of it being the origin of the virus, even the Chinese government, which has been not the model of transparency in this process, now says, we don't think it came from there. The Trump administration obviously very early on leaned into the idea that it could have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was this uh, high-level laboratory in Wuhan, Um, There is no evidence, we should stress, of it having come from a lab. But notably, a lot of scientists are now coming out and saying, hey, you know, maybe we dispelled this idea too quickly. And maybe we did that because the Trump administration proposed it. And it immediately seemed suspicious if they were throwing it out there. Kind of an interesting example of how we had said for a long time on the podcast, when there was a genuine global crisis and the administration came out and said, trust us, we have intelligence, it would blow up in their face. It seemed Seems like this is an example of that without even getting to the question of whether it really came from a lab or could have come from a lab. We just still don't know. And it was notable to me, Tammy, that the World Health Organization uh, at least temporarily scrapped this interim report that they were in Wuhan to write on the origins of the virus you know, following a really pointed, tough statement from Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor to President Biden, who said, look, basically, we don't have a lot of confidence in this process. The Chinese are withholding information. They're not being forthcoming. So one question to start us is, you know, how much of an obstacle is that for the United States to overcome? Do we have to resolve this issue and put more pressure on China to be forthcoming about where the virus really originated so that, remember, we can prepare for the next one? Or do we just have to kind of move forward and perhaps accept that, at least for the foreseeable future, China's not going to come clean about this, and we've got a lot of other fish to fry uh, in that relationship, and we're just going to have to deal with the ambiguity for now? Yeah, I I think this is a, a dilemma um, that is going to confront the United States on a lot of different issues. This one, I think, is um, particularly out in the open because it's a global public health issue and because there are so many scientists who are not themselves government employees who are involved in the process of trying to 
determine the origin of this virus. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, like if we don't figure out exactly which animal it came from or where it came from and how it transferred to humans, that doesn't mean that we can't combat it effectively. We still don't know exactly how the Ebola you know, virus reemerged. They think it came from bats, but they don't know. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't fight Ebola, right? So, so it would be helpful scientifically, but it's not absolutely essential. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, yeah, the Chinese have made it incredibly difficult for scientists to do the work necessary to try and pin this down. And one would think that the Chinese have the biggest stake of anyone in figuring out how this happens so that it doesn't happen again. I mean, they have taken a huge global hit on this as well. And instead, what they did was, you know, stonewalled this WHO investigation for a long time. Uh, when they finally allowed the WHO researchers into China, they controlled their itinerary. They didn't let some members of the team in because they said they didn't trust them to be objective. And then they basically made them do a press conference with Chinese researchers before they left the country to issue, quote, preliminary findings, unquote, that seemed to support Chinese theories about the origins of the virus. Now that we have a little more time and we've heard from some of those researchers directly, what they've said is like, no, 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 we didn't find any evidence backing those Chinese theories. We just can't rule them out. Like we can't prove the negative. So I think that there are kind of two tracks here. One, as you said, is the difficult challenge the Biden administration faces of weighing where public health cooperation with China and with the world, including China, fits into the broader U.S.-China relationship. That's a really, really hard kind of calculation to make, given the range of issues that we have with the Chinese. And, you know, it gets to the broader kind of debate that's going on in Washington right now about whether fighting China is the new organizing principle for American foreign policy, which I know we'll talk about some more in the podcast. But then the other, you know, sort of narrower question is how can the Biden administration do on COVID what it has said from the beginning it will do, which is to be 100% transparent and show all its work and maintain the trust of the American people when it's still cleaning up the mess of a Trump administration that didn't do that. And it's dealing with a world community that is having trouble doing that. And, you know, this, um, there's a controversy right now, and I'll end on this, about this fact sheet that the Trump administration had issued just before they left, basically implying that the theory of this lab accident had some basis. And you see some former Trump officials continuing to push that theory in public. Um, and the problem is that the Biden administration can't release the, the background that led to the publication of that fact sheet, what intelligence information it's based on and so on, without potentially compromising sources and methods. But if it doesn't show its work, then it you know leaves that theory to fester. And, you know, I think that's kind of a narrow but illuminating example of the dilemmas that they face. I mean, one thing that um, that Tammy's comment sort of made me wonder is if there aren't sort of two possible goals here that are a little bit in tension. So one is understanding 
the or, the specific origins of the virus for scientific purposes, uh, for purposes of preventing it from happening in, in the future, and also for purposes of blame and accountability and potentially specific liability and all the things that sort of flow from that as being part of also preventing it from happening again, right? Holding people responsible is a way to um, incentivize others to be more responsible in the future um, versus uh, another goal of creating systems in which the world can respond better uh, as these sorts of things emerge. So how do we not just prevent the emergence of a virus, but understanding that something is going to emerge again in the future, incentivize uh, information sharing, incentivize intelligent sharing. Ordinarily, those structures require um, creating environments of sort of trust in which sharing information is not going to lead to adverse action and blame, right? You sort of, you have to sort of construct a, a kind of a safe space there. And so not to say that these are um, that they're incompatible. But I, I, I do wonder, I, I do think it's interesting that the conversation seems so focused on how do we understand what happened specifically so we can prevent it from happening again, um, and less on once this virus emerged, it was clear that there was massive failures in communication, and that co- that drove the spread and caused you know, huge amounts of death. How do we prevent that from happening in sort of a like a virus neutral kind of way? Um, and I, I do wonder if that'll become a, like a bigger part of the conversation moving forward. There's another issue here, though, and it's one that Tamara alluded to, uh, which is that this is a kind of high stakes microcosm of the larger question of how you deal with China, right? And so you have the apparent corruption of the WHO, which is something that, you know, China does with international organizations. It's not the only country that tries to do it with international organizations, but it does. You have the uh, almost total opacity of the regime in dealing with its own failures. You have the uh, refusal of the regime to play ball with, you know, international uh, entities on a fair or reasonable basis. And this is, you know, the same problem that you see in the South China Sea. It's the same problem that you see in trade. It's the right. I mean, uh, China doesn't really believe in an open international order. And so the question of how an open international order handles a China in period of its rise to the world's largest economy, to one of the two largest military powers in the world has a kind of like if you can't even get them to take responsibility for telling the truth about how how a worldwide pandemic got launched from inside their territory uh how on earth are you going to handle these other things and i do think that's the sort of lurking elephant in the room that the pandemic is you know really really important but it's also a, there, there's also latent in it this question of how do you get China to play by rules that is much larger than just that question. So we may begin to get an indication of how the Biden administration intends to answer that question, because literally, as we record, the news broke um, from the State Department that next week, 
Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will have their first meetings with Chinese counterparts. They're going to meet in Anchorage, Alaska, as Tony and Jake are on their way back from what looks to be their first trip abroad. They're going to Tokyo and Seoul. So they'll be meeting with our closest Asian allies, and then they'll have their first meeting with the Chinese the day after we record next week. Can't wait to hear what Tom Cotton thinks about all this. Oh, my God. Tammy, just as we close out the segment, should we make anything particular of the fact that the Chinese are coming to meet us on U.S. territory, you know, in in, in our turf? Yeah, I mean, it was since there are no big international multilateral meetings where we could easily have a sideline. This is practical. I don't. I mean, it's not going to be a full-on hosting. It's not I mean, like they could when, have like they could have met us in Seoul, right? I mean, like the fact they're coming to you know a U.S. state is seems notable. Yes. Well, we'll see what the optics of the visit are, but I suspect it's going to be like they meet in an airplane hangar and then they both get back on their planes and fly they're away. They're going to meet a Sabaro in the airport, <laughs> right? So it's not going to be like you know any Five pomp guys. and circumstance. It's a five guys, totally. That's that's much better than Sabaro. No disrespect to Sabaro. Well, maybe Sabaro <laughs> deserves a little disrespect. It's just I mean, the worst. I, I, it's you know, it's it's not uh, great. It's not great. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just not great. Uh, let's move on to something great. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, why don't you go first? Okay, so my object lesson is a new report by a colleague and friend at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy named Matt Levitt, he has a new report out called Rethinking U.S. Efforts on Counterterrorism Toward a Sustainable Plan Two Decades After 9-11. Now, in and of itself, you might shrug and say like, yeah, him and 50 other people. But I think that what really distinguishes this report, which is grappling with an issue that we're all going to be grappling with in coming years, which is how do we end the, quote, GWAT, the global war on terror, and go to something that's a more sustainable posture. But what Matt's done here that is, to me, innovative in such think tank reports is that he's taken a really serious look at how counterterrorism is budgeted and what, you know, the way in which counterterrorism equipment and missions have been sort of glued on to other parts of the military budget And if you're shifting toward a more sustainable posture, how do you untangle the CT mission from the rest of the defense budget and fund it in a sustainable way? And especially, how do you fund the civilian side of CT in a sustainable way? So I I think it's a real contribution, both to the debate about how do we do CT more sustainably and to the debate about how do we put non-military tools front and center in our national security policy. So kudos to Matt Lovett, and I commend it to all of you. Cool. Ben. So I have a new podcast. Oh, yes, you do. Another one? Wait, is this, uh, the new, is this newer than the one you started last week? I think I already know about. Uh, well, the first episode dropped on Friday. Okay, it's the same one. I'm just making sure you haven't started yet another. Go ahead. Nope. Uh, So a few weeks ago, my object lesson was uh, the TV show, A French Village, which I said I would report back to rational security listeners and about whether it was in fact the greatest thing since sliced bread or whether Sarah Longwell of the Bulwark was blowing smoke up of all all your asses. Only two choices. Only two choices. Well, 
I heard from, in light of that episode of Rational Security, I heard from Sarah Longwell, who was delighted that I was actually watching A French Village in response to her recommendation and pointed out to me that if I were inclined to do a regular podcast on watching it with her, that option was on the table. And so Le Podcast is born. Le Podcast? It is. We're calling it colloquially Le Podcast. It's actually called A French Village Podcast. But um, it is now... um, trending on Apple Podcasts uh, in the TV and film section. Uh, It's a few behind Giggly Squad, which I had never heard of until uh, we found out that we weren't quite doing quite as well as Giggly Squad. But It's it's good to have something to strive for. Yeah, it's true. It's like back back when the report was trending but couldn't quite pass call her daddy, right? Um, which was a source of, of, of frustration <laughs> to me. Um, I should not remember that. Okay. Uh, that was, you know, there was one week when the report was number one on Apple podcast, but then there was this podcast called call her daddy, which always beat us every week. And I just think like it had vaguely obscene cover artwork. I'm proud to have gone this long, having no idea the actual subject matter of that podcast. And please listeners don't tell me, I don't want to know. Yeah. It was a metaphor for something, but anyway, the podcast is up. We will be dropping episodes every Friday. Each episode will cover two episodes of the show, a French village And uh, I cannot tell you it is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I can tell you that Sarah Longwell is not blowing smoke up your ass. It is very worth watching. And I hope our little exploration of it and the subject of complicity under stress will be worth listening to as well. This this show is still on or it's complete? It is complete. It is seven seasons. And are there like 170 episodes of this show? I believe there are about 90 episodes. So you've got like at least 45 podcasts about this show. Yeah, it's going to be a year of doing two episodes a week. We're going to all be like eating in restaurants and on planes. And Ben's going to be like, nope, sorry. Got to record an episode of Un Village Francais. (laughs) You know, I'm just saying it's not like anybody's predictions we're all going to be going on planes have, have come true yet. And if people lose interest in the podcast because we are, they are too busy going around and about with other stuff, then God bless. If in 45 weeks we are not eating in restaurants and on planes, there's going to be a problem. We're going we're to we're need another show about that. I mean, seriously, if in 45 weeks this shit were still going on, then we have been lied to. Just saying, Susan. So I think it's important that this podcast approach the Biden administration with the same level of criticism and scrutiny that we applied to the Trump administration, especially on issues of transparency. And so I would like to note what I think is a pretty big transparency issue right now, and that's conflicting stories about Major Biden and whether he was sent back to Delaware as punishment for biting a Secret Service officer. Right. Did he or didn't he? Right. Did he? Was the person harmed? Was this a pre-planned trip? Was you the know, skin broken? Was the skin broken? Was, you know, did the agent... As Major had his shots. 
right? Yes. Was it reasonable? Like, right, was this self-defense? Um, and I think that we should develop an elaborate major Biden was framed conspiracy theory. I think this is a rich territory for us. QAnon needs a new topic. Justice for major Biden, who is a good dog and, you know, shouldn't be shipped off. Major Biden also had concerns about the election, by the way. This is the nicest thing I've ever heard you say about a dog. I like dogs. I just don't like she, all. She doesn't dogs. like bitey dogs. <laughs> and I and I happen to like cats. And I reject the framing that if you like one, you have to hate the other. <laughs> I like dogs. I like dogs I like too. Dogs. I like dogs too, and I have to, and I have cats at this, and I had. This is a false accusation of not yeah. liking dogs. Yeah, no, totally. I remember. A, I remember a particular story you told me once about going to an interview and, and, and yes. company and being sort of repulsed by the fact that there was a dog in the office jumping up on people that it didn't know again yeah, when you're in your interview suit that's wrong it's just wrong particular context being important um <laughs> you know. i'm all about taking things out of context susan <laughs> great apparently say that for your other podcast uh, <clears throat> my uh actually my object this week is another podcast um listeners will remember i recommended to you a podcast a few weeks ago called why is this not a movie uh, where a friend of mine was on talking about Kim Philby and why wasn't there a great biopic about this notorious, oh, amazing yeah. spy, right? So I went on the podcast, which just dropped this week, talking about why is this not a movie about the Able Danger program? Do you guys remember Able Danger? Vaguely? Yep. Able oh, Danger yeah. was that, yeah, Able Danger was that crazy army intelligence program before 9-11 where they were doing like what we would now call like Google searching. And the claim was that they came up with evidence of um, Muhammad Atta being in the United States before 9-11 and that all the information was destroyed. So like this was the army program that identified the 9-11 hijackers 18 months before 9-11. And none of this came out until after the fact. Um, I wrote about this in The Watchers. It's like the second part of, of that book. But it's this great story because, A, like after 9-11, it was some years actually this came out and there was this holy shit did we know about the attack beforehand. But then like even more in retrospect now, it is this wild story of this group of analysts, some of whom are like very sober, reasonable people who say, look, we were doing some pretty aggressive, unconventional stuff that lawyers had problems with because we it would look like it was violating privacy law. And yeah, we identified some things about Al Qaeda and, you know, a, a troubling presence, but like we didn't identify the 9-11 plot. And then like the other part of that team, which is like, oh no, we identified the 9-11 plot and the government shut us down. And like one <laughs> of the people who was in that camp actually was part of the Stop the Steal campaign. He was like no. the director. Yes. Yes, he became like the director of intelligence research oh like, for all of these, for like these, like that secret fund that was like funding all of the lawsuits. And what was the name of the lawyer that worked with Rudy Giuliani? Like she had all these shady. Can I, no, no, the other one. Oh, I can't. I can't keep always. Yes. Like the, she was on like some board and there was this think tank and all. Anyway, he got all wrapped up. In, crazy, crazy. Anyway, it should it be a should movie. Be a yeah, Able Danger should be a movie for like all kinds. It just keeps getting better and better. So I went on Mike Bagos' podcast. I can't podcast believe you went on the, the podcast and you didn't say Rational Security should be a movie. 
Well, he plugged rational security, by the way, in a very prominent way and thanked well, us because when we talked about the podcast before, he had like the largest spike in viewership he's ever had. <laughs> we got I, thought your, I thought your object lesson was going to be about that the cocaine bear movie, about how they're making the story of what? the bear eating 70 pounds of cocaine <sighs> on accident into a movie. Oh, that should definitely be a movie. We'll, we'll devote another episode to that. Wow. Can we talk about cocaine hippos too? <laughs> Can we have another hour for the podcast? Because the cocaine hippos <laughs> of 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 Colombia, which were our feral animals brought to Colombia by Pablo okay. Escobar for his personal menagerie. Oh, yeah. And there are now like 50 of them living wild, and they're awesome. This they're is not wild cocaine, been discovered on the internet. Podcast. Yeah, that's a real thing. And then eventually when they die out, they'll just there won't be any more hippos there, and they'll be very sad. But I don't think they're on cocaine. Chomp, chomp. Yeah, indeed. Well, I may need a little bump myself now because that's the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Oh, that's good. Yeah, you can find little, like, you know, cocaine pen knives or whatever those things are. That's what we're selling now. <laughs> Branded Rational Security drug. Drug. Shane, drugs are a very serious issue, and I don't think you should be joking about them. The don't. rational security takes a sober approach that to narcotics. It. My favorite drug quote from a movie from Love Actually, where the, the aging pop singer says, Remember, kids, don't buy drugs. Become a pop star, and they give them to you for free. <laughs> That's right. Listen to your Uncle Bill. Oh, you can follow us on Twitter for free drug recipes at RATL security. Just kidding. We don't do that there. You can find us on Facebook. Still, still on Facebook. We're still on Facebook. We're not anywhere else, but we're there. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review, preferably a really nice one. It helps others find the podcast as well. And we appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank. The show was edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week. I think it's this week's band is going to be uh, the QAnon Shaman with his new band uh major biden was framed yeah I think if he's got go. a new direction to go in you know he's 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 understands that the election has been settled but now he's uh he's taking the side of uh everybody's got to have a cause you know and i think this is a good one for him his mother gave an interview uh and uh recently and you can tell from her interview that the crazy does run in the family mm. <laughs> apple didn't fall so far from the crazy tree does it oh no <laughs> wow well, Sophia Yam will not be in that band, I think, but she is a dog lover as far as I know, until proven otherwise. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.